Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, a new podcast from Phillips Academy where we'll share the compelling stories, thoughts, and ideas of Phillips Academy faculty, students, alumni, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show will feature candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to the important matters happening around the world. What does it mean to be born digital? How are adults and children navigating the ever-evolving and complex technological landscape of modern life? Are kids spending too much time on devices? Or are they using modern innovations to develop crucial life skills? Today, we present a special episode recorded live at the recent relaunch of Head of School John Palfrey and Harvard researcher Urs Gasser's book on just these topics. The open forum with local students presents many more questions than answers, but proves that we are all continuously learning together and must continue to think about what's next. We started doing this book project about 10 years ago. Uh, This is the original version of the book. And I had a a very embarrassing experience the other day, which was uh, we did a family weekend uh, book talk uh, or book club for the the parents who were here. Uh, And one of the parents actually had an original version of this book. And on it was a big um, sticker for the price. And it was on top of a bunch of other stickers. And it said $2 clearance. Uh, And he was holding up like this, which is an author's worst nightmare to know that the first edition of your book came onto the clearance bin. And some one of the parents had found it and brought it in. Anyway, um, the important thing to note, uh, other than the fact that it's a clearance object in the original, (laughs) not a collector's item apparently, um, is that just like this event, the writing of this book has been both a labor of love and a huge team effort. Uh, Urs and I, uh, at the time that we started writing this book, actually were academics working on two different continents. So Urs uh, was a professor at that time at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Um, I was teaching at Harvard uh, University. And we had research teams on both sides of the Atlantic. And first among many people, uh, first among equals in this, um, was a woman who's here, Sandra Cortese, who was involved both in that team in Switzerland and now actually at Harvard runs um, a youth and media lab that we have been um, uh, have it up and running really for uh, close to a decade now uh, at the Berkman Klein Center. Um, and what has been so fun about this project is that right from the start, it has been about young people and how they are learning and growing in the digital age, but it's also been done um, a lot by young people who have been involved in the research right from the start, and Sandra and others have done such a great job of integrating young people into the research. Most of the way we've done the research has been by learning from what others have done, so um, this is a topic where interdisciplinary research is essential. There's no one uh, no one field that has the lock on how young people are growing up and, and interacting in a digital age. Most schools don't have a media studies department or professors of the internet. Um, so what we need actually are interdisciplinary teams of people who come at it from different perspectives. So Sandra Cortese is a psychologist by background. Urs and I are lawyers. Um, we've had business people involved. We've had uh, sociologists involved, people from every different background um, imaginable to try to figure out the, the uh, meaning of this topic and, and how we can, in many ways, uh, solve for an equation, which is in a digital age, as students are growing up in a different way than ever before in history, how can we ensure that young people get the benefits, many of the advantages, and certainly those quotes up there in the video are about many of those advantages, and also that we actually cut down on some of the downsides. And I suspect many of you um, will have some of those on your mind, some of the distraction that clearly comes from it in terms of not paying as much attention as you're going through your homework, perhaps having Facebook up when you are also doing your homework or Snap 
or otherwise. Um, some of the things that come about uh, with respect to uh, your work in class that might not be as focused as it might be otherwise because of a use of technology. We had a, you know, in, in every day you have instances where you are thinking in history class you want people uh, to stay completely focused. So that's clearly one of the things uh, we're paying attention to. Some of you may have seen that the cover uh, this week of Time magazine um, is about anxiety, depression, and the American adolescent. And if you read that story closely, it's in part about the role of social media in uh, an increase that, re that researchers are finding in terms of young people and anxiety. Um, and something we certainly see on this campus as we focus on mental health as a very important initiative, certainly at all universities, that's a growing and important area. To what degree is social media, in fact, involved, and how can we mitigate the harms and so forth? So really, this project has been about trying to make sure that we are focused on the great things about these technologies and encouraging it and supporting it, and there are those, but then also mitigating some of those, those downsides. Um, so the, the version that we're uh, talking about tonight, this, this re relaunched version, um, actually also has a very important Andover connection. Um, and it d dates back a couple years when our editor came to us and said, um, the book still sells a bit, um, but it is totally out of date. And one thing that Urs and I knew, we actually put this in the first edition, we said, this book will be obsolete the moment it is printed. And that's actually sort of true about the digital age. Um, and so now, you know, eight years later, it certainly had lots of uh, examples, including MySpace and Second Life and other things that are really cringeworthy and embarrassing now when you read it. That's why you will see uh, this version I have here is wrapped still in plastic. I can't bear to open it because of all those embarrassing things. Um, but this version actually is an improvement, so if you are, in fact, reading the book, um, I would urge you to read the new one, not the old one, because it would be better. Um, but in a way more important, the reason it's better is because a whole lot of people were involved in doing that. And actually, two of them were Andover graduates, so um, we had a, the opportunity to bring two wonderful researchers, um, Juan Wu Kim and Zainab Aina, who, after they graduated Andover, spent the summer at Harvard um, going through the book, and literally they had the Word documents, and they went through. We actually did the writing, but they did all of the scrubbing of the book to say every time we said MySpace, um, they helped us put in Snapchat or you know whatever the appropriate thing was to go in, Facebook maybe at that point, um, and every time it said Second Life to take it out entirely. Uh, anyway, th so they, we, this was a huge, huge um, uh, collaboration between Andover and uh, and our team at Harvard, which was which was so much fun. So anyway, there are many hands that have made this book. Um, we're awfully grateful to everybody who has been involved in it. Um, I also want to say one other thing about its uh, this book as a story, which is uh, the my coming to Andover five years ago was something that I'm so grateful to have had the chance to do. Although I miss my friends uh, worse than others at Harvard. But I'm often asked, why did you leave one job to come to another? This is not a normal career path, just to be clear. Um, and I had not actually worked in a, a secondary school and so forth. And actually, one of the, the substantive reasons was that I got so interested, really, in the age um, that many of you are here, from 14 to 18, um, and what is different about it. And the opportunity to come and not just work in a school, but actually live among uh, so many wonderful, truly extraordinary 1,100 uh, students who are of this age, this was an, something I couldn't turn down, sort of an amazing opportunity. And so to have all of you to be creating this event and to hear from you in a few minutes, I'm very grateful and very excited, and I owe it in many respects uh, to you that we've been able to do this work. Wurskasser, if I might turn to you, um, the last chapter of the original version of the book and the last chapter of this version of the book are written in an unusual style, which is to say that we wrote emails to one another back and forth. Um, and... Old school emails, it's true. Mostly on airplanes, because both of us travel way too much. 
Um, so we sent emails to one another, and, and it's, a, it's a dialogue about what is most important. We call the, this last chapter the synthesis chapter. Um, it's completely different in this version than, than in the original one. Um, and I wonder if I might, in that same spirit, uh, turn to you with a question and, and uh, ask you to reflect a little on the process of uh, writing a book, the process of teamwork that, uh, that went into it, and if in any way uh, the technology and social media and the, and the work of these, these students actually kind of plays into that mix as you, as you think about um, the process of making the book and also uh, some of the learnings that, that come out of it for you. Thank you so much, Sean, and uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for, for hosting me, for hosting us. Uh, really, really um, honored to be here and uh, looking forward to, to having a conversation as quickly as possible. Um, John, thank you, of course, for, for many years of, of collaboration. Uh, um, this has been an amazing um, experience uh, as a researcher, for sure, as an academic interested in a topic, and uh, but more, but more so also as a human experience, I think what stood out for me is, as John described, um, the collaboration of, with John, uh, who's amazing, as you know, uh, but then also the collaboration with with many um, people that uh, John briefly mentioned. Um, that was just a very deep human uh, experience. So to work across distance, across continents. Uh, talking with many young people around the globe, working with concerned parents, with teachers. There's um, perhaps the biggest takeaway of, of all this is there is a shared um, sense of responsibility. And, and that, uh, to me, uh, is kind of the biggest gift that the book writing process uh, gave to me to feel in a world where we have so many troubling things that are going on and, and where we so see so many um, uh, gaps and divides that there are topics where we actually come together and, and want to make uh, progress together and that really is how can we build a better world for all of you, for all of us, uh, for um, young people in particular uh, using this tremendous um, technology called the internet. Um, that to me, that spirit is, is something that uh, has excited me a lot. And if I may perhaps add just one point, the biggest insight going through this process is really to change perspective. Um, I'm a dad, I have two children, Ananda and Dave. Um, I'm a teacher, um, I'm a grown up, an adult, um, but this book has somehow, as John mentioned, um, made us listen uh, to, to young people. And we'll hear more from you uh, in just a minute. And, and the video was a very good, I think, uh, captured it very, very well, some of the voices we've heard, um, that in a way also serve as um, maybe um, a seismograph for the future at large. So some of the themes we we discovered and researched in the book and we'll hear more about today, I think, touch upon very fundamental shifts, uh, how our world operates and how the world looks like in which uh, we live. So to give just three examples, the first one, and, and this became clear here too, that in many of the statements in the video, you immediately felt a bridging between the offline and online world. So the internet is used uh, one student said, well, to allow me to reach out to my relatives who are far away, 
or it connects us as we prepare for an exam or do homework. So you see the physical space and, and the online space that these boundaries are blurring. And that's a theme we've heard a lot from young people that, um, well, adults and elderly people like myself, as my son used to say, that you're an elderly person now, um, we, we still divide between online and offline. And, and I think many young people don't do that anymore. And now, fast forward, you know, as we move in the world uh, into a world of the Internet of Things, where suddenly we have sensors and, and um, objects that are also interconnected, you can see that the, that the young people are actually three steps ahead. And yes, indeed, uh, these lines are blurring between online and offline. And I think we as, as adults can, can learn a lot from all of, of you. So that's one example. The second one. Uh, uh, is coming up in the privacy chapter of the book, and that's the distinction between private and public. Um, the generation of my parents and certainly grandparents had very strict demarcation rules, what is private and what is public. But in the world of social media, also something that uh, was mentioned in the, in the video, um, there are different types of semi-publics and semi-private spaces emerging. And young people have actually uh, taught us, or at least that's the way I look at it, uh, that there are different ways to navigate these new hybrid spaces where I, as an adult, can learn from young people. And again, if we look at the world around us, indeed, uh, it's no longer clear even uh, for, for professionals or adults uh, what's private and what's public. So uh, again, their uh, young voices and young people may have discovered something earlier than we, and now we have uh, also as adults to deal with it. And the last example maybe, also going back to some of the references about YouTube and, and uh, using the technology for filmmaking and creativity, there is also a blurring line between, I would argue, play and work. Uh, for many young people, this technology uh, blends and, and, and walks the line, the internet and digital technology allows you to play, be playful, joyful, to experiment, to do fun stuff. At the same time, the skills you, you build and you use for doing these fun activities, be it gaming or serving or whatever it is, they also translate and become relevant for, for the educational context, for learning, as many of you mentioned already, and, and later on immediately also for, for work. Uh, as we uh, yeah, live in a digital economy. So again, you see a, a blurring of lines where, where young people, again, seem to be ahead of the curve and, and we as institutions, as society, I think, uh, lag behind in how do we navigate these more complicated, actually, these com more complicated environments uh, where lines are blurring. That's never easy, right? It's always more tricky and often also more fun. So these are some of my, uh, my uh, takeaways, and uh, I would just like uh, to end by thanking again all the young voices from which I've uh, learned so much, and will continue to learn tonight, I'm sure, so thank you. So I think that is actually the perfect segue to invite our young voices up to the stage, so if uh, all the student participants might, uh, might come up and join us, we will get out of the way here. And if it's okay, what we'll do is, uh, Urs and I will come along, uh, ask some questions. Please do not hesitate at any point to jump in on a question that we might ask. Um, so uh, if I ask something of Madison and you would like to respond, you also may respond. So do not feel you know, bound by it. And mostly we'll just hope to get all voices in. Maybe if it's okay, though, I just ask 
um, that those of you on the end maybe start um, and introduce yourself. Um, one of the nice things we have tonight is we have some colleagues from Phillips Academy. We have some friends from uh, some other schools. So if you wouldn't mind saying uh, where you are from uh, school-wise and maybe what, where you are from in the sense of uh, where you're actually geographically from. So maybe if we could please start on the end. I'm Arsh Bazorgzada. I go to Andover High School. Um, I'm Persian, I'm half German. I was raised in the US for almost all of my life. Hi, my name is Madison Petaway. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, and I go to Andover. Hi, my name is Hugh Jones. I'm from Whalen, Mass, and I'm a senior here at Andover. So this is actually an interesting moment here, just to pause yeah. before you do it, Hugh, which is with Arash um, being at Andover High School and you all being at Phillips Academy, comma, Andover. Um, often, I think, some people might call this Phillips from the town. There are lots of different interesting things going on here, so um, just uh, to note that little distinction. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ronnie Gupta. I'm, I go to school here at Phillips Academy, and I'm a freshman. And I live in Andover. You're, in fact, from Andover, Mass. You're very complicated. You live right across the way. (laughs) Hi, um, I'm Emma Coral. I'm a senior at Andover High School. I've lived in this town all my life. Awesome. I'm Jennifer Walgren, and I'm from Methuen, and I go to Greater Orange Technical School. Hi, I'm Skylar Salek. I'm a senior here at Phillips Academy, and I'm from Westport, Connecticut. Hi, I'm Yatarta Garwal from Kuwait, and I'm also a senior here at Phillips Academy. Hi, my name is Jason, and I'm from Lawrence, and I'm a student at Greater Lawrence Technical School. That's awesome. Thank you all for joining us and for making time on a Friday night to talk about this incredibly dorky topic, which is so fun. But uh, we're really, really thrilled that you are here. Um, I'm going to start with a question, and then I'll, I'll let Wurst do the second one. Um, uh, I was actually going to start with you, Madison, since you are the uh, co-president of the student body and and such a great leader here on this campus. Um, I'd love to start really with a question um, that is about the opportunities associated with uh, the digital era, and we'll definitely get to some challenges along the way. But I wonder if you might just start us out thinking a little bit about the way you think about civic life, you gave a snippet, which I didn't know you were going to do you know, on the, on the stage. One of the findings that many researchers have these days is that young people are interested, even more interested than ever, in civic life in one sense, um, but not in another. Um, that there is a little bit of a decline in some uh, measures of voting, for instance. Mm-hmm. There's a big decline in students being interested in institutional forms of service, in other words, going into uh, government service or running for office. But there's a big uptick in informal kinds of civic engagement um, that actually, I think, are having very, very big impact in the world at large. So some of those might be uh, creating an NGO, might be social entrepreneurship. It might be getting involved in Black Lives Matter, as an example, which we use to open the activist chapter of this book, um, that are having uh, a really important impact, I think, on the discourse at large. And I wonder if you might just comment on, uh, maybe expand on what you set up there about civic life uh, and how you see it emerging in the digital era. Yes, of course. Um, so basically, I started my education about anything social justice related through the internet, just because I didn't really have those resources available to me through my family. And so that's how I started. I would Google hashtags such as hashtag Black Lives Matter, or what does black feminism mean? What does intersectionality mean? What does any term really mean? (laughs) Because I had to get involved in these conversations on Andover's campus, but I didn't feel ready to get involved with those conversations with my limited knowledge. So I really used the internet and social media 
to find a way on how to educate myself and also to hear voices from my peers that are all over the world. And so I think like what um, Mr. Palfrey said about getting involved in civic engagement through the internet, like through social media, through these hashtag activism movements is relatively easy just because most people have access to the internet and it's also a way in which you don't have to go out and do a sit-in or like join a march or like go to a workshop. It's where you can just do it in between your homework and you can just put something online saying, hey, I support this movement. And so I think, but I think also one of the difficulties of hashtag activism or social media activism is that it's so inclusive that there doesn't seem to be one voice. And I think the fact that all these voices are mixed together can sometimes make it difficult to see what the goal is, to see if there is a goal at all. Because I think when looking at, I know I'm taking a class on the long civil rights movement, and so looking at that movement, there was a very clear goal of what was happening. Even though there were community goals and there were global goals, there, you knew who the speakers were, you knew who the leaders were, and I don't think that's the case in our current movement right now. And I think that complicates the matter and it calls on us to really feel as if how how are we going to connect to this institutionalized engagement that we sometimes stray away from just because that's seen as, that's seen as too much work or like where do we even start with that and how do we connect that to our social mo media movement so that we can inspire more change? Because I don't, th at the current moment, I don't think we can have one or the other. I think we really need to find a link between the two just because everyone's, uh, like everyone appeals to social media and yet we also need some institutional change. Absolutely. But before I turn it over to Urs for the next question, does any other student like to comment on this civic activism point at all? Yeah, please, Urs. My view may be slightly more cynical in this matter. I've seen the rise of social media and the use in it in activism in both sectors. You can reference the Arab Spring and its effects. You could also look at the urbanization movements and the, in many ways, anti-fascism movements in China. One instance of control was shutting down of cellular towers, so protesters could not communicate. But they managed to adapt a app designed for Burning Man. I believe Blue Jay is the name that uses Bluetooth to create an entire network. But that is where I see the technology being used to actually promote. Where I see it having a negative effect is the idea that people are doing piecemeal to action. In large sense, people believe that they have somehow made a change or that they have fulfilled their section by adding a banner or changing a detail on their Facebook. In many ways, it has actually limited freedom of expression. It has gone in the direction where you may not make an actual change by your statement, but if your statement can anger any section, very quickly that section can mobilize to deface you on whatever social media you use. In a sense, it has destructured the idea that you and yourself are an expression. It has stripped us in ways of freedoms at the same time promoting them. I think, though, that there are many ways it is being used to promote. There are groups which are promoting our, social, our actual cybersecurity. If you look at a major issue was internet neutrality, net neutrality. I, I do believe you actually have spoken on this matter, yes, too. Yes, for sure, yeah. We worked a lot on net this neutrality, was the very FCC much in favor. Was, absolutely. Yeah. This was a massive movement on the internet. And the way it was very useful is people actually went to the petition. They didn't just write an angry 10-minute post and then do 10 videos why they like Bernie Sanders and then 10 videos about Donald Trump looking angry or being compared to some, I don't know, face in a yogurt. 
these make us feel better. These are, in many ways, a, these are a luxury that we have promoted and we are allowed because of social media. But I do not think they actually create change. But they give us the feeling. It's many ways when we start to eat lots of sugary stuff. Everyone's had that day where they, they skip the real meal, they skip the salad, and they go for the two bags of Doritos and the soda. You are satisfied enough to not reach out and do anything more, but you haven't done anything beneficial to yourself. Thank you. Skylar, one more, and then we'll go over to worse. Yeah. I have to agree on a lot of what you said, but I think the biggest thing for me when we think about social media in terms of activism is this idea of globalization. Never before have we really been able to have these types of discussions on a global basis, and I think this is one of the benefits of social media. However, as you were saying, we do have to take it with a grain of salt, but I think the idea that these discussions can span through you know, the entire world and the entire, like so many different cultures and so many different communities of people with so many different backgrounds that I think we are starting to spark discussion and that spark will, that spark through social media has a chance to develop into something more and I think the fact that social media has the ability to have that spark to ignite this, these kinds of discussions is something that is a huge benefit of social media and of technology and of our growing society. What's so neat about this topic, in a way, is I agree completely with all of what each of you three said for different reasons, but I actually think in the complexity of the topic, there's a lot of truth in all that, and we can definitely come back to it. But, uh, Ors, I'm hogging the stage, so my friend. Thank you. No, this is uh, very helpful. So uh, if I may stay on the topic of social media a little bit, so that's something that um, people my, in my age in the room are uh, still kind of struggling with, uh, to understand social media. Uh, and how to use it productively. And, uh, and I think this quick exchange already indicated uh, there's, there's an unbelievable opportunity, right? If we use social media, interested to hear which your favorite platforms are, let's say Twitter, you can inform yourself, you can learn about different viewpoints and the like. But at the same time, of course, it can be also a pretty lame excuse to click on like and think that changes the world, which it may not, right? as you pointed out, uh, or worse, um, we can experience really bad things. Uh, there are many people who are hurt online, social media, uh, there's a big hate speech problem, cyberbullying is something that uh, many of us are worried about. And so I was wondering, how and where did you learn, do you learn about the navigation of the social media world? So. Um, where do you get the skills from? Is that something you talk about with your peers? Is that something that Mr. Paul Such a dangerous question. Do uh, they yeah, learn no, it at exactly. Phillips Academy, uh, right? So, oh, so, boy. You know, how, how, how do we think about Help that? me out here, how gang. Do we think about that? <laughs> uh, and not only here, of course, uh, in Andover, but also more broadly, maybe considering young people who don't have the same access to educational resources as we have in this part of the world. So I'd be really eager about, A, your own learning and skills, but then also what can we do about it to equip young people, younger than you, of course, um, to, you know, to navigate this complex world. And a fair answer is nowhere, that we're just learning it on our own. That's completely legit, for sure. Hugh, why don't you start, if, if, and then... Uh... Um, I think, like, 
everyone, we all learn kind of what we know about the world from the people around us, uh, whatever kind of classes we sit in, whatnot, whatever people are talking about um, in the hallways of school, um, anywhere. And I think that the same logic applies when it comes to how people learn how to use social media. Um, like, at least for me, like, when people talk about liking things on Instagram or, you know, snapping someone this on Snapchat uh, or whatnot, whatever that might be, that lingo is so, like, integrated into today's world, at least for us and our generation, um, that it's the type of thing that you very quickly pick up, just as you might pick up any other cue or anything that else, any other thing that's popular um, in any place. Yeah. Helpful. Anyone who's not yet spoken, if not, we'll just go to Arash. That's great. I think, I think you're on. Go for it. It's interesting, though, your mention on language. There's this idea called um, generational sub-dialect. Um, it's the idea that one of the ways we try and defer ourselves from who we see as our peers and our teachers, the people we have always represented as authority, is to develop a secondary system for communication. It's, it's one, it spawns quickly, and it's often confusing, but it dies out in a lot of ways. There's a reason why... Um, Metaphor is still around, but groovy is not very common. <laughs> a lot of what makes it easy to catch on in the beginning is what has it die out. Um, with the understanding of how we learn social media, that's one of the more fascinating ideas about neural viruses. Or make, that makes it sound scary, but the basic idea is that certain thoughts and certain ways of communication become very adaptive and spread like wildfire in a system. One of the reasons that Facebook was able to spread originally was because it was localized. It was the idea that this is, it started out at Harvard EDUs only. People there were allowed to access it. Then it suddenly became Stanford and BU and MIT. And you're connected to this group of people, which is your campus. And there's a pride in that. But then it started to become, well, I can connect to everyone. Because no one wants to receive 10,000 Christmas cards of families and have to reply. But if you can hit a like, that tends to be more attainable. On the idea you brought up earlier, which was hate speech that happens, there, that is one of the problems. That's the backlash of being able to create communities on the internet. You can find people around the world who are fascinated in a piece of poetry translated a thousand ways and create a book. This actually happened. A person found a piece of French poetry, loved it, put it up online, and challenged people to translate it, and then created a book out of each person's translation. That's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. And actually, yeah, let's bring it down to Yatarth, and then I'd like to follow on that. Babies eat sand. I'll come back to that. But this summer, I got to observe my grandfather learning to use a laptop. It was my mission to educate him. And the previous spring... He's lucky to have you as a teacher, Yatarth. That's great news. The previous spring, I got to teach some middle schoolers to use a computer. And the difference was not that the computer showed more help text to the middle schoolers than the granddad, but the middle schoolers just, when they didn't know what a button did, they just clicked it. And my grandfather didn't. And I think a certain willingness to risk, or perhaps more accurately, uh, Mis uh, lack of understanding about consequences um, leads us to try out more things and ultimately find out about what they do and what they don't do. Tara, thank you. Sigal, do you want to say something on this and then I'll ask another question? I think going back to your original question about how we learn about social media, I think that comes from the fact that 
there's so much online for us to learn and as young people we are so curious so that curiosity kind of going off what Yatharth was saying about our willingness to just push the button if we don't know what it does I think that connects to our willingness to use the internet to figure out what we don't know and to kind of create allow us to create a better understanding of this world that we have no idea what it is and that's why the younger generation I feel has kind of taken over technology as a whole. It's a wonderful segue to what I was hoping to ask next. And actually, I thought maybe for Jason and Jennifer, um, since both of you are, are, as I understand it, in the information technology program right at the Greater Lawrence uh, Technical School, I wonder if you might comment a little bit on this skill building uh, and the importance of the program that you're in. And um, do you see it as something that's preparing you specifically for uh, a, a particular job in the economy, do you, or do you see it more as a more general kind of program that is uh, helping you navigate social media in the way it was said, and, and, um, and is that, from a teaching perspective, something that we might learn from here at, at Phillips Academy or elsewhere? I find it as a, a general general aspect as um, for us to learn and for us to teach others as well. And um, usually just we like to troubleshoot and um, not not be afraid to troubleshoot and troubleshooting as like fixing issues as um, not like as you two said that um, not to be afraid to, to press that button or use the internet to learn how to resolve some of the issues. I love it. Actually, one of the things I think is so interesting about the use of technology, particularly when you're doing it in the context of solving a problem, is it actually gives skills that I think are great for solving any kind of problem in a way, right? And also giving you a sense of confidence, hit send or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Jennifer, did you want to comment? Well, I think um, that the experience is helping us to like understand more. And as he said, troubleshooting helps us out. And it's experience that not everyone gets, so I think it will be helpful in the future for like a job or understanding all technology, things like that. Thank you. It's really helpful. And we've, we've been thinking a lot here at this school about to what extent is this something that we ought to teach directly or is it something that we ought to kind of let you all figure out? And so in some respects, there are classes. You can take computer science classes here, but you can also work in the, in the library in the makerspace. There's a space where, where students can come I mean, that's definitely one of the questions I think we're asking is to what extent versus is it a curricular matter where one ought to think about it explicitly as working this into, you know, a particular class or is it actually something we want to figure out how to get this kind of skill engaged across the curriculum or in some of the informal forms of learning that we, uh, that we have at the school. All right, maybe one more for the students and then I'd like to, uh, there are a bunch of adults in the room who have also done some homework, so I'll turn from there. But, of course, I don't know if you had one, one last question for the students before we make that pivot. Yeah, sure. Uh, if I may, just kind of a quick response also to the exchange. I, I, I think there is an interesting tension that we've also been struggling with in the book, frankly, and that is on the one hand side, young people, uh, through our eyes at least, have this some sort of willingness, willingness to experiment and try out and click and touch and, you know, that's this idea of digital native. You're born into this world, as you nicely described it. But then there is the second story in parallel that, well, to do to to learn using this technology to communicate meaningfully to to engage in civics in a, in a in a sustainable way that requires at the same time certain levels of skills and and a certain uh, level of know-how 
and it goes right back to your point, the question really is, you know, how can we best support this tremendous opportunity that uh, digital technology offers? Um, looking back and also listening to these um, voices today, I don't think we can just throw devices, uh, you know, at people and then hope uh, good things will happen. I do believe we have to uh, think very hard about um, our support strategies, be it in educational institutions, but then also someone mentioned government. What can the government do about it? Uh, what can technology companies uh, do about it to, to really make, um, to deliver on this promise of the technology? I don't think it's self-fulfilling. Uh, technology can be used in many different ways, good and bad, and it's our shared responsibility, also of course many mm -hmm. parents in the room, to support the good uses. And to me, that's, that's somehow uh, different from my own thinking back in 2007 and 8 when we wrote the first version where, where I was more um, hopeful in a way that good things will just happen from here onwards because it's so easy for young people to interact with the technology. That's a little bit maybe a pessimistic note on, on that. No, I think it's very important. Certainly a finding that I've had here in this environment which is these things aren't self-executing. They don't just happen. In fact, um, there's so much brilliance in students but also there's a value of being in partnership with them in, in lots of ways. I think that's really, really important. Um, I want to make sure if anybody hasn't had a chance to speak, Emma or others who want to um, comment on any aspect of uh, growing up digital before I turn it to the adults. Um, yeah, I think on top of the whole learning and understanding how to use technology, um, as people who didn't grow up with it, I think it can be scary in a way. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of judgment that comes along with it. There's a lot of, oh, you know, get off your phone. You're always on your phone. Are you texting? Like, and it's, it's not always like that, I think. I think, um, I think there is a lot of room. And with the right people and the right etiquette, you can learn a lot from technology. I think that it is kind of passed off as something that, oh, if you want to go into software engineering, you know, take some classes, learn how to program. But... I think in this new day and age, we are reliant on it in a way, and it's good and bad, but yeah, I think, I think the basis of it all is manners, and I think people log on to something, or they open their phone, and they forget all of the etiquette they've learned, and they have no fear because they're not actually facing somebody and talking. I think it's important to remember that there's somebody behind the screen, you know? I love it. That's so great. Actually, one of the most important findings in our first round was really just thinking about from a parent perspective and a teacher perspective, it's often just common sense, right, that, that will help in a circumstance. And one of the things I think that uh, is very important about the research is that um, very often people will say and do things in a digital environment that they wouldn't do face-to-face -face because of this idea of the disinhibition effect, that you are less inhibited when you don't see someone face-to-face. -face. So the common sense comes back in and saying, just do what you would do face-to-face, -face, right? And don't put yourself in a, in a bad position because you've done something you wouldn't do to your friend or say to your friend and then have that recorded and repeated a million times, whether it's a sex or it's a picture you'll later regret or whatever it is, you know, just to have that thought first just as you would in a face-to-face -face setting and not do the judging, I think, as, as, you, as you mentioned. Ron, do you have anything you wanted to add before I, I turned it over? Uh, Mr. Palfrey and Mr. Gasser, you guys mentioned a little bit earlier that the idea of should we let the kids explore or should we go out and help them and um, help them in discovering technology and learning and using technology. So 
Well, we, we have a, I remember a quote in um, our math building. Is, it's a quote from Mark Zuckerberg, and it goes something like, in 15 or 20 years, we'll be wondering why we haven't been teaching our kids um, computer programming 15 or 20 years ago. It's, it's something that will be standard in 15 or 20 years, and we'll be looking back on why we hadn't done this earlier and why this wasn't implement, implemented earlier. So this idea of teaching, these, uh, teaching kids really young how to program and how to create things for themselves, and, and which is becoming the basis for a lot of new companies and new businesses and new softwares, is a really valuable uh, tool that I think young people are really should be learning. And what we have at Phillips Academy, we have a couple of classes where we, le we are learning um, computer science. So just getting the tools to learn how to create our own thing on the internet and get our content out there is something that's really, I feel, is important. Um, I just want to end uh, with a big, big thank you. One of the findings we had in the book is that we really do see this moment in history as one where it takes an enormous amount of collaboration to solve lots of problems, complex problems. Uh, and I actually think we have touched on so many interesting societal issues even just tonight and really seeing the sense that I don't think anybody comes away tonight thinking this is something that any one of us could solve alone, but rather it does take community and it does take culture. And I think we heard some really wonderful uh, comments about how crucial those uh, relationships are that people have and the way that by working together uh, we can solve some of these things. So in that spirit, I'm delighted to close. May we please have a huge round of applause uh, for our panel and our wonderful comments. Thank you. Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Association, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Subscribe on iTunes and visit our website at podcast.andover.edu. I'm Amy Morris.